get when you have one of the great business turnaround artists in the same room with one of the men responsible for turning the tide against COVID. A candid and freewheeling conversation about what it takes to be a successful leader, which includes hearing what you don't want to hear. He's the guy who will sit me down and say, yeah, come on, really? I mean, he'll he'll listen to my story and then he'll basically cut me to shreds. I'm Irene Silver with the Vanguard Network. Fred Hassan made his reputation as a CEO who helped turn around three pharmaceutical companies. He's now with the private equity firm Warburg Pincus. Tal Zaks was the chief medical officer at Moderna when that company developed the COVID vaccine. And he is now also working in the private equity world at a company called OrbiMed. Vanguard president Ken Banta was a moderator of the discussion, and he started the conversation by asking Fred Hassan how his leadership has changed over the years. Let me start out with um, a very basic question. You know, you've been um, a leader, uh, an investor, a board member for 35 years, maybe more. Um, and I wondered if you could uh, share with us um, how you evolved over that period. In other words, what uh, have been the biggest learnings for you as a leader over that time from when you started to where you are today? That's a very good question. I think we're always changing, always learning. Every every decade, one should be different. And, and in my case, uh, over the years, I didn't really know what I was gonna end up being like, but I tried to learn and get better. I think the one the one dimension of what I did uh, was the people part. Uh, I, I think a business acumen and drive are things that you get taught. Uh, I, I'm I'm a student of business administration, MBA. Okay, so so you you know a lot about that stuff. You drive. We we all have ambitions. We we all want to work hard. I think uh, being more effective with people is something that you don't get taught in schools very easily. You learn every decade, you, you get better. Tal, I was gonna ask that same question of you. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? I think every age has its beauty. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I think for me, it's the sort of on the other side of the Moderna success, if you will, I've, trans, I've, I've changed my life quite explicitly to be in a place where I can still learn uh, and still be curious about, and you know, I'm immersed in venture capital people. I've never done anything in my life for money. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's almost weird, but it's great because it's a very objective way of actually looking at the world. So I'm still learning a lot. Um, I, I tend to agree with Fred's point about sort of learning more about people and how to influence people because, and the second element for me has been communication. I think the, one of the greatest gifts I got from my journey at Moderna was the continuing sort of improvement and learning on how to communicate. I would, I would venture that everybody in the room whose title is CEO need to understand that that means communicator, executive officer. <laughs> uh, it is at the end of the day about communication and telling the story and I had the opportunity at Moderna to actually learn that it's fun. I would relish, I mean, Ray will attest to this, but the calls we had with investors and the media at a certain point when you get over 
your initial anxiety, which you, there's, a, there's a very simple trick, by the way, to doing it, and that's called rehearsal. <laughs> um, but communicating the story effectively becomes both the challenge and the fun bit. And that's also true in the investor world. I mean, fundraising, we were, you know, I raised money with Moderna for Moderna for, for quite a few rounds. And the first, it was extremely daunting. Towards the end, it actually got to be fun. Now, you ask me, all of you CEOs, what do you mean fun going and telling the same story again and again and again? Well, here's the deal. I used to go in there. Moderna had a, had a tome this big. And I realized at some point that raising money is actually a little bit like being a missionary. When you go in to meet a venture capitalist or an investor, it's not about telling here's my Bible, I'm going to quote you every chapter and every verse, and I'm going to start with that first God-created earth, right? No, no investor wants to do that. And if you think about how, what a missionary does, they want to listen to what your religion is, and then they'll talk to you and they'll quote you the relevant chapter and verse from their Bible that fits the story, right? So you have to listen to what the other... And very few people who come to pitch actually think about listening. It's all about, here's what I'm going to pitch. Fred, um, from your experience, and, and maybe this leads right into this next question, um, life sciences CEOs, it's a tough job, uh, but often uh, it's not a job that people succeed in. Uh, they don't necessarily last. What do you think um, are the, the key success factors for life science CEOs? What are the things that they should really focus on to succeed for the long term? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. Uh, I think unlike many other sectors, the life sciences uh, sector uh, is based on biology. And biology is uh, still very hard to predict. In spite of Gen AI and all the other good stuff we have, very hard to predict. So when I look at failure among executives, much of that is noble failure, where the, 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 the molecule died, the mouse died, something died, something happened. So uh, unfortunately, these things happen. And uh, I would assume 20% of failure is probably just what I call noble failure. The other part uh, is probably avoidable, where you need to uh, be able to see around the corners and see uh, and have the foresight to 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 know what kind of risk profile you're going into, and and also being better connected. I think this being 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 better connected to financial capital because investors are serious about their investments. Being in, being much better connected to human capital, because if you have people around you, they will root for you and do a good job for you. And uh, being better connected with uh, social capital, because in life sciences, we, we do have a bigger duty than uh, just being in a sector where you don't need to worry about social capital that much. We are dealing with medicines that help people live better, live longer. We're also dealing with quality and compliance and claim structures. That that uh, that do impose a lot of uh, uh, responsibility on us. So social capital is is really very important. And, and finally, the most important connectivity is with yourself, and knowing who you are, knowing who you're not, and knowing uh, what not to do. So in my case, I did write in my book 
at one point, I wanted to have the clinical and the drug development and the drug discovery report directly to me. And one of my uh, people asked me, I had a thought partner uh, who was not an R&D. He said, Fred, are you an R&D person? Just a question helped me understand that I was not an R&D person and I shouldn't be doing that. So just, just knowing who you're not is, I think, especially very important, being connected with yourself. Uh, so a lot of people lose sight of that. Uh, I've seen large company executives go off the rails because they do not have the thought partners. They do not create a team at the top that is very comfortable, that resonates well with each other. And where there's candor and feedback and easy, easy candor, easy feedback. Uh, and, and they're the ones who go off the rails. There are many, many examples of that in life sciences and also in other sectors. And Fred, maybe you've kind of partly answered the question of, uh, I was going to ask now is, how do you develop that self-awareness? Uh, it sounds like part of it is uh, having the right people asking questions. Is it, do you rely on, on family to ask you tough questions or do you uh, rely on uh, people outside the organization because people reporting to you might not necessarily tell you the full story? How do you go about getting that self-awareness as a top leader? I think it's uh, always being humble and always being being curious and always asking uh, two fundamental questions. How am I doing and how am I really doing? Really doing, really with uh, <laughs> capital letters. Because many times people will say, you're doing great, but how are you really doing? Are you using up a lot of time that you should be using to have a plan for success? Are you not getting the most out of the resources that you have? Are you working with too many people who are yes people around you or very obedient people around you who are not anymore uh, that good at, 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 at what they're doing? So having this 360 degree mechanism is important. Some of us get very lucky, we marry the right person and that becomes a fantastic sounding board. But we, we, we can find sounding boards wherever we go. And many of them can be uh, on the job. Uh, as uh, Tal said, I think a lot of good relationships do occur on the job. But earning trust on both sides uh, is something that doesn't happen very easily. Most interactions are transactional. A few transactions become trust-based transactions. When that occurs, then there's resonance. That's, that's, that's when things start to flow very easily. And it's very important to build three or four or five relationships of that magnitude of intensity so you can really get the best information possible. So let's, uh, I, I, oh, go I, ahead, Tal. I, I wanna resonate with that because it took me, I remember I realized this, I think only when I was at Sanofi, uh, so I come from a different culture where, you know, you've got friends and the concept of networking in the U.S. was something, just the word was very foreign to me. I thought it was transactional. So, you know, people come to find me when they need something and I'll go find somebody. And I realized uh, at a certain point that actually true networking is much deeper than that. It's figuring out the people that you can go talk to or that they can come talk to you on the stuff that matter, that because there's trust on one hand and there's no organizational or hierarchical relationship on the other, it builds, it gives you that place mm -hmm. in which to have an honest conversation. 
but I realized I lacked it because I'd grown up in a certain organization. As you go up in the organization, you've got fewer and fewer peers within. So you actually have to create with some effort what that network is. And I remember I, okay, so what's my gap in life? Now everybody knows it. I don't know process. So I need a process solution. So I wrote down, if I'm, if I can find 10 people, like that, who will come from different walks of life, and I will meet with everyone once a year. It means that about once a month, I've got a meaningful conversation with somebody. And so I set up, this goes back about a decade, and I've got a list, you know, a couple of HR, a couple of people from different industries, da 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 da. And I basically sought to create very explicitly that support structure that I could then have meaningful conversation. I'd say today, it's kind of morphed to be more intuitive, but probably four of those names are still on my once a year we have dinner or, or, or breakfast or lunch. And, and Dan, uh, isn't it, yeah. isn't it like uh, circles of trust? Huh? Do you have an inner circle, then you have an intermediate circle, then you have an outer circle? And uh, it's, it's fine to have an outer circle because it's many times there may be some special area where you've built up trust with somebody who's in the outer circle. Like if somebody has a very good nose for sales forecasts, you can go to that person. If somebody has a very good nose for selecting a drug that that's gonna do well, you go, you go there. Uh, or people skills, talk to that person. It doesn't have to be always the same person talking about the same subject. It, it could be your different bases for trust, but the circle of people is very important. Those that are the closest are the ones that'll be your biggest rooters. I mean, they'll, they'll root for you. And I think that's the, that's the most important thing. They want to see yeah. you succeed. And you want to see them so, succeed. I, I think in my personal uh, case, I would say that I completely agree with you. Yes, the inner circle of trust is, of course, my wife will tell me everything <laughs> and why I'm always wrong and she's always <laughs> right. And that's true. <laughs> Uh, but but beyond that, I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. So, you know, we were talking about purpose earlier. Uh, in, in my one week at Wharton, uh, the, the, the third takeaway for me was actually meeting a guy by the name of Nick Craig. He's the author of, you know, he's the head of the Authentic Leadership Institute. He's all about authentic leadership and then purpose, and he's written the books and da-da-da. And so we bonded in that week and we when i moved up to boston now 13 years ago we sort of became friends and we regularly meet you know for dinner once a year and he's the guy who will sit me down and say yeah come on really <laughs> i mean he'll he'll listen to my story and then he'll basically cut me to shreds and and and, it, and, and it's thanks to him I, I remember a few years afterwards, he said, tell what's your purpose in life? Tell me your purpose, like hone it down to me. And so over a bottle of wine, my purpose became, I had to give him an answer. And the answer became, I translate science to medicine. That's my purpose mm -hmm. in life, right? And that for me, it, it really helped me just how I think about myself. So, but, but it, it was a process by which he would cut me up over dinner repeatedly, <laughs> right? Uh, but I trust him to do that. And so you have, you develop these relationships, as Fred says, of people you go to for different aspects of what you're dealing with. Yeah. I think, uh, Tal, one example of a transactional relationship that must get turned into a trust-based relationship is the relationship between the CFO and the CEO. So many times the CFO is the chief accounting officer, uh, the chief numbers person, the board goes to the CFO, everybody goes to the CFO, but the CFO also has to 
play the role of business partner and business advisor to the CEO. And many times they just see themselves as client servers. They, I'll just give you the numbers, I'll give you the balance sheet, the, the P&L for the month, but you go with it, you're the CEO, I'm just here to serve you. I think that's a very big waste of opportunity in my opinion. And I was told that by Ram Sharan, who's a great advisor to Ken as well. He said, if you don't have that axis of trust with your CFO, then you're wasting an opportunity. You gotta build it. And the CFO might be very competent as an accountant, but if, if that trust has not formed in month six to month 18, it's not gonna form after month 18. So it had better form in a certain time period. And that's an advice I've always kept in the back of my mind. That was Fred Hassan, CEO and Chair of Warburg Pincus, along with Tal Zaks, the former Chief Medical Officer at Moderna, speaking at a recent Vanguard Forum for Life Sciences CEOs. The forum is just one of the membership benefits of the Vanguard Network, which organizes events, publishes content, and connects C-suite leaders. Our mission is building high-performance leadership. If you'd like more information about us, please visit our website at thevanguardnetwork.com. I'm Irene Silver. Thanks for listening.